I was a Bass Agent bookkeeper. And I think there's a real opportunity for everyone to step into that role and recognise that, you know, we're a force to be reckoned with. That knowledge is insanely accurate, up-to-date, minute by minute, and really valuable to people who want to listen. So have the confidence to be in a business group and present or go and speak to your local council on behalf of small businesses or get involved in the local chamber of commerce that is advocating for small businesses in your area because that amount of knowledge that bookkeepers and bass agents have is phenomenal. And because they're in those accounts weekly, daily, because they're on the phone to their clients a lot, they have that real knowledge of how their small businesses tick. And that's really powerful these days. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Good Money Podcast, a show brought to you by CAPE. We're a spend management platform helping businesses cut wasteful spending and get control of their cash flow. For those joining us for the first time, my name is Ryan Edwards Pritchard, and I'm the host of the Good Money. Uh, my job is to bring our listeners up close and personal with finance professionals from some of the world's most exciting and fastest growing companies. Our aim is to help show how finance is another key driver for growth, uh, just as vital as, say, marketing or sales. I'm incredibly excited to get stuck into a topic I personally find fascinating uh, by exploring the changing uh, payments landscape from a regulatory perspective and what we all can do to champion the campaigns that support our battered high streets as well as having the chance to explore the evolution of accountants and bookkeepers in a post-pandemic world. With that in mind, it gives me a great pleasure to welcome on board arguably the face and biggest advocate for small businesses over here in Australia, which is Alexi Boyd from the Council of Small Business Organisations, aka COSBOA. Uh, For those not in the know, they represent the interests of an astonishing 1.3 million of the 2.1 million small businesses uh, right here in Australia. Great to meet you, Alexi. Thanks for making the time to come talk to us today. How are you doing? Good, thanks, Ryan. Apart from being virtually sitting down with you as opposed to sitting down to you face-to-face, that's obviously a big disappointment, but the life we're living right now, right? Yeah, we've had to learn to adapt, right? The restrictions have been tough and they've had a significant impact on small businesses globally, but especially here in Australia, as we've had what a hard four-month lockdown to deal with. Um, on a on a positive, if you look at the infection and mortality rates, though, especially when you're comparing us to our peers globally, there's no doubt it's been an effective short-term measure to protect our communities and shield the country from the worst of the health destruction brought on by COVID-19. Uh, but at the same time, it's landed some serious heavy blows on so many people whose livelihoods depend on us being out and about, particularly small businesses. So the National Cabot's plan phasing out of restrictions, which is aligned to achieving certain vaccination rates, is is definitely cause for optimism, as that's when we'll see the widespread lockdowns start to get unwound. Now's the time to start thinking about what does a world look like post-pandemic for small business owners. Exactly. And, you know, that's something that we're always talking about in terms of what small businesses' role is in those society questions, I think, rather than business questions. And that's how that small business situation is evolving these days. And it's evolving quickly. Local small businesses form the backbone of a healthy, function high street community. 
But when you look at the data, the Australian economy, along with the global economy, has changed drastically with the pressure of the pandemic. The economical outcome has varied widely uh, between different sectors. And not to compare it to a game, but it's almost that of snakes and ladders with two clear sets of winners and losers. On one hand, we've unfortunately seen the death of the high street, a decline in manufacturing output and the overall deterioration of local supply chains. But on the other, we've seen the transition to selling online more effectively. What's clear is that with these huge structural shifts overnight, there's never been a more important time for someone to champion the needs of small businesses from a national policy level. What I'm looking forward to is hearing more about how we can all proactively help with this recovery. Yeah, well, I mean, there's some really great ways that consumers can help and there's some practical things. In fact, if you're shopping online, make sure that you look for the small business option first. Make sure something is a genuinely a small business, doesn't just look like one and it's owned by a big company. Make sure you're shopping local, go local first, as we always say here at Cosboa. And when it comes to reopening, get out there and really support your local shops because We can guarantee if those shops disappear, it's not going to be other small businesses moving into that space. It's going to be big. And if we're not careful, we're going to lose the very fabric of what we love about our high streets and what we love about our shopping centres that make them eclectic and different and unique. And it'll just become this homogenised mess of big business. So we need to get out there and support small businesses so that they can continue to do the good work they do in the community by hiring local kids, which is, you know, how many of us had our first jobs at a local newsagent or a local small business, by making sure that they're looking after their local community through sponsorship of school fairs and for sporting communities and being the very fabric of our local communities that we need them to be. 100%. I grew up in a relatively small town with 10,000 people. My first job was with the local newsagent delivering the papers Uh, then delivering milk for the local dairy farmer, Uh, then getting a job in one of the only restaurants in the town to wait tables and wash dishes. And that was all before my first big break into the world of hardware and software when I got to work with my dad in the town's industrial park on his own small business, which was focused on fixing broken computers for the local community. And that was all before I was 18. And look where you are now. You know, you're the CEO of a fintech and you're out there using all those skills. Now, if you'd gone into this homogenized environment and maybe gone to the local Coles or Woolies who just churn out the same old, same old, small businesses really help to mold people and you learn from the small business owner. You really learn what it is to run a business. You learn about the marketing, you learn about the human resources, you learn about the conversations that you need to have as a business owner and as a leader. And I think that the best leaders out there and the best CEOs are ones who have had that small business experience. Couldn't agree with you more. It's certainly character defining, that's for sure. What about you? Because I mean, would love to just kind of, yeah, hear more about you and your background and kind of What brought you to where you are today in terms of being the business champion you are? Where did you start your career? Well, actually, it's a funny story because my career, I guess, started as a teacher. So I was a dance drama teacher, you know, after doing my, I think it was seven jobs (laughs) that I had at uni, the babysitting and the dance instructor and everything that goes with it. I started my teaching, actually was in teaching in London, in Enfield for about the first five years of my career at a really tough school and earned my stripes and came home, decided to start a family. And then I was working in a bit of corporate. I was an office manager for a marketing company and then ended up starting my bookkeeping practice. And I was working with micro and small businesses for about 10 years. And now I've sort of launched this advocacy side and taken off on the advocacy work. And I think 
that came from my community work, my volunteer work with having a radio show on local community radio called Small Biz Matters. Some of your listeners might be familiar with it because it had that slant of the bookkeeping slant and it was quite well known in the bookkeeping community. And it was all about education. So it drew on my experience as a teacher and I just wanted to go out there and find out, answer the questions that my clients were asking me about all the complications of running a small business. And over eight years, it became a very trusted brand. We had the likes of Optus and Cisco, corporate heads of small business would come and speak on the program. I'd have authors, lots of people wanting to come on the program and uh, talk about what they were doing, but also talk about their small business journeys. And it was also a trusted brand with the ATO and ASIC and ASBIFIO, the Australian Small Business and Family Enterprise Ombudsman, ended up being my sponsor. So that's sort of is how I ended up in Canberra with this role is interrelating with all the bureaucrats and the administrators of policy and having those doors open to me. So you never quite know what part of your career, not necessarily the paid work, but sometimes it's the unpaid work that can open doors and really lead you into your dream job. And this is what I have been doing for years. It's quite funny. People say, is it different? And it's not really (laughs) because The questions that I would ask on the show, the understanding of small businesses that bookkeepers innately have for all of their clients. I mean, I don't think people realise how much knowledge is there about all these small businesses that they look after. And that is what fed my understanding of the small business community. And the questions and the conversations, you might be having them at a federal level or with a federal department or even a minister. But the conversations are the same as what you have with your clients, as what you have with grassroots campaigning, your local council, your local chamber of commerce. It's the same conversations. It's just on a different stage. Interesting. Wow. Taking a step back, kind of going from the transition from teaching into bookkeeping. So that was, what was the catalyst? What was the thing that actually kind of really, was there a tipping point in terms of you going, well, let's just kind of park that? Because I mean, two different careers, it'd be fair to say. But yeah, just really curious in terms of making that transition, what happened? Oh, burnout. Burnout is what happened (laughs) because nobody works harder than teachers. Nobody works harder than secondary school teachers. And nobody works harder possibly in a really tough school in the north of London as well with an eclectic group of students, let's say. But I just got to the point of sheer exhaustion and coming back home to Sydney and realising actually that's not the career that I wanted. I still love teaching. I still want to be able to teach, but this is really hard and exhausting. So that's when I kind of went down the corporate route and played around with being an office manager in a marketing company. But after being in that world for about another five or seven years, I wanted that autonomy of running my own business. And when you're an office manager, you're basically the bookkeeper as well. So I didn't have any formal training, but growing a company from five to 20 staff, all those changes that happen with it, that developed my understanding again and led me into a career of doing bookkeeping for the next 10 years. Wow. And then taking a step through in terms of from the Small Business Matters podcast. So you were in that for eight years and that was the kind of, I guess, the door opening into the feds, into policies, regulations, like moving slowly into that kind of space. And was that the transition as well? then also getting introduced to Cosbo. Like that's just such an interesting thing, just tracking your career and getting to where you are today. Yeah, I think that that was more of a slow burn and a frustrating one at that, I might add, because, you know, when you're volunteering and you're spending all those hours putting it into your passion project, 
and you can sort of see where you want to go, but there's not a clear pathway. That can be very frustrating. And it is just a matter of one foot in front of the other. And I really feel for the people who put their heart and soul into a passion project, but then they don't have something else to back themselves up financially. And that's why I'm so grateful for the bookkeeping because my clients, not only did they give me the information that I needed to carry on with the podcast and the community radio show, but they gave me the income to be able to pursue something that took up, I reckon, about half of my time (laughs) if I was being generous. And then that's what opened the doors to other things. But it wasn't a clear picture of where this was leading. And that at times would be really frustrating and it was very difficult to stay on that path. But when you've done something for three, four, five years, you don't want to put it down. You don't want to let it go because it is just you. If I walk away from it, it's not a sellable asset. It's not something that anybody else can pick up and run with. And I didn't want to let it go. So you sort of have to keep at it and just take every opportunity that you could. And for me, the way it developed was by positioning myself as small business media, (laughs) which sounds a bit weird. And I would just get in front of PR companies and I'd say, look, if you've got an event, you want someone to come in and do a Vox Pop or a podcast, I'm happy to do that. And I'd do more free work for these big companies by being media and that would open more doors. And then over time, you know, just by having that presence, but lots of small businesses do that. They muscle their way in. Well, you might not recognize what that footprint looks like yet before you step into it, but you develop it and you paint that picture as you go and then you step into that role. And I think I would say to anybody listening to that journey, just have a bit of faith, stick to the path, don't mess with your product, don't mess with your what you're trying to achieve. And eventually, if it's meant to be, it will happen. In the meantime, try and enjoy the journey. So many things I can take away from that and resonate. I mean, one is building CAPE and just to that point, the personal sacrifices, what you're saying there, It's the fortune of having other people around to help you actually go and pursue what is a passion project. I mean, for me, it was 20 months without a salary and it can be a long, hard journey and a lonely one at that. But it's only possible through everybody else that can come around you to be able to actually get something off the ground and build it. And then that point in terms of the media, it's so important in terms of, yeah, building awareness in terms of what you're working on and championing what that actually is. You know, you've got to go out there and you've got to go take it. You've got to go make it yourself. Nobody's going to just suddenly kind of gift you something. So couldn't agree more with that. And then it, just in terms of, I guess, Cosborough, so as you were saying, slow burn, you were building out your profile. You were very much kind of positioning yourself out there in the small business media. And I'm assuming at some point you must have, because you recently took over from Peter, Peter Strong. So congratulations. Yes, thank you. Big shoes to fill. Someone who's been in the role for 11 years and who is basically the face of small business at the federal level is daunting. And when I met him, he comes with a certain aura of authenticity and passion that nobody else can possibly replace. So it's about how do you take someone and take a role that is very much theirs, make it your own, but then not change the formula because that itself is very successful. I mean, he is Cosboa and he's got a great team and a wonderful board behind him. So picking up where he left off, that required a really intensive handover. And I'm not talking about a procedural one. (laughs) I'm actually talking about a relationship one, you know, being in the room at the same time for about a month, being introduced, learning who's who in the media, learning who's who in different departments and regulated bodies at the federal level. All of that took time. It it is challenging taking over from someone who is all-encompassing for the space that you're trying to move into. 
Yeah. And just in terms of your role previously, what was your interaction with Cosbo before that at Ownjust? As small business media, I had attended one of their conferences and done a whole series of podcasts for them where I basically, I would interview the deputy commissioner for the ATO and I would interview the head of the ACCC, the head of NBN. I just occupied the podcasting room for their conference. And like I did with all the other conferences, packaged it all up for them and said, thank you so much for having me. There you go. And they loved them and they put them up on their website as some of their podcast material. And then just being around the edges, just supporting what it is that they were doing, retweeting or relinking their social media stuff and just hovering around the edges, really. Nice. Okay. Well, so, and again, you built the relationship over time and a nice bridge to kind of, yeah, walk across when the opportunity came up to then actually take the main chair itself over at Cosbo. Congrats. That's fantastic. So I guess in terms of speaking of taking things up, I've noticed in terms of the press as well, there's been a big spotlight of recent in terms of some of the initiatives, some of the campaigns that you are working on, that you're championing. One of them in particular, it's definitely something which is close to us because it's all about spending. It's all about payments. Would love to hear about what it is that you're currently working on and I guess how people can get behind these campaigns. Yeah, that's right. And there's a number of ways that small businesses and particularly the accounting and bookkeeping community can be in touch with. I highly recommend that an advocacy body like Cosboa that you support them through socials, have a look at the work that they're doing because it is across so many different sectors of the small business economy and sometimes it only has touch points on a few of our members. And just to give people a bit of background, so COSBOA is a peak body for small business at the federal level. Our direct members are professional associations. So we have around 50 associations that we represent and it's people like the Hairdressing Council, the Lotteries and News Agents, the Convenience and Petroleum Marketing Association. There's myotherapists, natural therapists. We've got some co-working spaces that look after small businesses. So it's a real mix It's not just the bricks and mortar, it's a bit of allied health, it's a little bit of consumer, it's a bit of contractors. So there's a whole mix in there and it evolves, it changes all the time. We have members coming in for one reason or another, need COSBOA's support, need COSBOA's reputation and connections to be able to prosecute an issue for them. And it's always changing, which makes it a very dynamic and interesting environment to work in. So through them, we represent approximately a million small businesses in Australia. And when an issue like payments comes up, we recognise pretty quickly that this is an issue that affects every small business out there because every small business out there takes payments. So we have been working in the payment space, some of our members and our board members for about 10 years, (laughs) more recently in the last three or four years around least cost routing. Now, Ryan, if you want to give me a couple of minutes, I might need to explain this because it's a complex. Yeah, I'm fascinated by dual networks and least cost routing. And I'm a big fan of seeing this push that through. But yeah, if you could take us through, that'd be fantastic. So when you're using a debit card, we're just talking about debit cards right now, there's two pathways that that processing fee can take. So anybody out there who's in the accounting world knows that, you know, as part of running a small business, you have to pay fees for these things to be processed. You don't pay fees on cash because there's no processing involved. There's simply just taking the cash. But as we see an increase in the number of electronic payments, we see an increasing in fees. And that's something that's obviously been exacerbated by COVID because of card not present and wanting to tap and go and using different devices to pay. 
So when you pay using a debit card and debit card transactions make up the vast majority in Australia, close like in the millions per year, there's two pathways that payment processing fee can take. It can either go Visa MasterCard or generally the cheaper option, which is FPOS. And the difference can sometimes be 10 times the difference. So what we're calling for from the government is to mandate least cost routing, which is the cheapest pathway for these transactions as the default. So what we're saying is give small businesses the cheapest option to start with and banks treat small businesses like clients. If you want to upsell to them maybe for a more snazzy device or better security or better privacy, whatever it is, or maybe a point system, whatever it is, you upsell to us. What's happening right now is that banks for the last few years have had to offer least cost routing. Now, anybody who runs a small business knows that an offering from a bank is probably going to be buried in page 64 or 500 of their contract, or it might be buried somewhere on the website. And the banks have done a really terrible job of offering least cost routing. It's really low, the uptake. And there's several reasons for that. One, you can't figure it out anyway. Two, it's usually wrapped up in all the other merchant fees that you've got as banking products with your bank, and you can't possibly unpack those. And three, it's impossible to change banks. I don't know anybody out there who's tried to do it on a consumer or a business basis. Has anybody got spare week to put aside to try and unpack this and figure out if they're going to get a better deal with another bank? Definitely not. Yeah, from both the customer inertia and technical ease, switching banks is a real issue. There was some really interesting analysis that came out off the back of the Royal Commission. Uh, one of those data points was looking at the switching rates in Australia. So on a rather somber note for the industry, uh, you're more likely to get divorced than you are to change your bank account. Yeah, the, the real worrying thing here is the levels of inertia when it comes to customers switching banks um, and the awareness of new challenger banks is incredibly important. As it's crazy when you think about it, but try naming me one other sector in the world where there is an oligopoly and the oligopolists don't want their oligopoly. Well, that's small business banking right here. You've got four banks that dominate the market. And the truth is they don't want to service all of their customers as huge ways of their customers don't actually meet their vanilla requirements to support them with opening an account or even to provide credit to. So it's incredibly uh, rare to get such oligopolists that actually don't want it. And if we take a look at this from a macro perspective, you know, there's on the consumer side, this is, but there's 25 million people here in Australia, roughly what, 9 million households or so. They're all pretty generic. On the other foot, we've only got 2.1 million small businesses out there. And each one is incredibly unique. You know, from your hipster digital agency over in Newtown to your independent cafe in Surrey Hills to the corner shop over in Marrickville, you know, each one of them might get paid directly through a car terminal. But from a financial perspective, they are all completely different. You know, if you're a hairdresser, you might spend 10 grand every couple of years refurbishing your studio. But if you're a haulage company, you might need to raise 100 to 250K every year to purchase a truck. Yeah, the banks really struggle that when it comes to small businesses, that they're not this homogenous blob. And frankly, yeah, there's, there's not 
there's not many of them. You know? So for cost reasons, they try to give them this one-size-fits-all approach. Now, the healthy thing for the banks to do is to be more cognizant of this, you know, where they understand that they aren't a perfect fit for serving every single business out there, and to look to partner with fintechs and other software providers where applicable to support their customers. Otherwise, consider that CDR, or open banking, you know, is now here. It's, it's once-in-a-generation opportunity to build software that delivers a superior customer service and user experience, and the promising thing is we, we do live in an API-based economy you know, where it's never been more cost-effective or easy to build a digital bank or challenge the incumbents or, you know what, if you're an incumbent, give it a go and actually try to um, partner with the different fintechs, as I mentioned before. I guess the one of the final pieces of the jigsaw puzzle is, is the payments infrastructure that we all operate within and how this gets modernized for the digital world we now find ourselves in. Well, you actually raise a really good point with that because this is not a simple, straightforward process, nor is it not tangled up with a whole lot of other regulatory issues. There is a merger going on at the moment with BPAY, FPOS and NPP, and it's a merger of these three entities which is in front of the ACCC at the moment. The risk is if FPOS becomes part of this merger and then through that process we lose that route for cheaper payments and if POS disappears, then every debit payment will go through the most expensive option. So there's a number of things at play here. And the reason why this all came to a head, even though COSBOA and all of its members have been working in this space for the last 10 years, is back in July, the RBA released a preliminary report that said mobile devices don't have to offer least cost that electronic payments and card not present, so that's if you're paying using a debit card for an online transaction, for instance, and also, you know what, the banks are doing a great job with offering least cost routing. We don't need to do anything there. And, of course, that really meant that we muscled up and said, yeah, no, that's not good enough, RBA. We need you to make this a more competitive level playing field and stop the banks having all of the control in this relationship and switch it back to the customers, which is the small businesses themselves. We've looked at all the legislation, we've looked at all the papers, and the one solution to all of these problems, which keeps being unpacked as we make this more complex, is when you mandate least cost routing as the default and you make that the fundamental requirement for all of this, It keeps prices down. It keeps prices of products down as well. And it makes for a more competitive environment and allows different payment players to come into the market knowing that that's the baseline that they have to operate on. And some of the conversations that we're having are about surcharging. So the typical response is, well, why doesn't the small business owner just put their prices up? Well, for starters, they're only supposed to put their prices up according to the transaction fees. If you go to any cafe, you'll notice on the little window, it says, we're going to add 10 cents to this transaction because it's costing us that much. And you go, okay, but that's not actually a true reflection of what the costing is and not putting a markup on it. The small business owner doesn't even know what their transaction fees for that particular transaction are, and they may be doing the wrong thing. So a lot of them are not even playing in the space correctly as it is. So Surcharging is not an argument for that reason. And secondly, it's not an argument because a greengrocer or a convenience store or a newsagent who is competing with the likes of Coles and Woolies 
who already pay less per transaction for these fees are not going to put up their prices because it makes them completely uncompetitive. Yeah, in a digital world where the experience is more important than the actual transaction itself, the likes of Amazon, Uber, Deliveroo, they've all set our future expectations towards a world where payments are invisible. Uh, what we don't appreciate is the cost that it comes at for all these small business owners. I saw some research from Mozo that estimated in Australia alone, tap and go payments have created a $550 million a year um, surcharge in terms of additional charges uh, being put onto them. So when you break that down, you know, that's $262 for every single one of the 2.1 million business owners out there that are paying for this extra surcharge. Yeah, so the question then comes back to how do we support that movement from an infrastructure perspective of seamless payments while still giving the power to merchants to push transactions through the least cost routing path? What we're talking about here is give the consumer choice and give the small business owner the choice and make sure that they have the option because right now everything is so opaque with their fees, they can't possibly make a good business decision without allocating it to someone else to do and paying them to do it or spend hours and hours trying to unpack it themselves. If you dig into the numbers, it's incredible to see that Apple Pay already accounts for 5% of all car transactions. That's forecast to double to 10% of the entire market by 2025. Um, putting that into perspective, although relatively hard to find, Apple Pay's revenue supposedly is, uh, or in fact was, sorry, $2.5 billion last year. So that's a third of the total revenue Stripe makes each year. You know, it's it, not bad at all when you consider Apple Pay only launched seven years ago. So it's, it doesn't really surprise me, though. Um, Apple Pay is convenient, safe, and fast. So really, why wouldn't customers love it? It does leave me wondering if the adoption of making such uh, secure payments with a, a pocket-sized slab of silicon and plastic is so compelling why don't we focus on fixing regulations of payments from here? What people don't realise is that when you pay using your phone, regardless of whether it's a credit card or a debit card, it always goes through the most expensive option, 10 times the price. That's what the merchant's paying because you're tapping your phone. There's not even an option for that to change, and that is problematic as well. And to me and to Cosboa, that's anti-competitive behaviour. Yeah, this space is unfortunately historically littered with anti-competitive behavior. I don't know if you saw, but um, Apple just announced a load of new features and tie-ups to enhance their payment offering to spur user growth. Uh, I think last week, uh, amazingly, less than 40% of iPhone owners actually use Apple Pay right now. So you know, it looks like they will be tightening the grip on the space. And this seems to be one-way traffic we're seeing with business owners being overcharged uh, and that looks unfortunately set to continue. This isn't really just about Apple though. This is also an issue with incumbents needing to do a better job uh, and especially around how they support customers with understanding some of the actions they take with their finances uh, and, and really kind of distilling and simplifying this down. That's right. And the big banks will tell you that this is a conversation about education. Oh, we just need to do better about explaining to small businesses what the fees are so that they can make good choices. Well, I'm sorry that they've had years to do that and they've failed miserably and they continue to bundle things up either 
<laughs> through their own means deliberately. I mean, I wouldn't say that they're deliberately trying to be misleading at all, but sometimes that's just the way that payment space moves. I mean, you know yourself, Ryan, this is an continually evolving space. We need to get ahead of the curve and lay down some foundation rules that protect small businesses to make sure that everybody understands that the environment in which they're working, everybody's working to make sure that as many merchants as possible remain in the space so that everybody can make a coin at the payments end as well. But making sure that it's a safe and a good level playing field for small businesses to play in. Couldn't agree more. Out of interest, so right now in terms of how can people support this campaign, first of all, because I think it's a really important thing. Well, on our website, on our Cosbo website, we've got a petition that's available to sign. If you just go to the homepage, cosboa.org.au, there's a section there that says save local businesses from crippling card fees. And it's an opportunity to sign the petition. That's one way to help. Another way to help is to, if you're a small business owner out there, talk to your bank sit down with them, well, not sit down with them right now, but sit down with them virtually perhaps and get them to explain to you how you can access cheaper fees. And having said that though, we do have some really good examples of small businesses who have gone to their bank and said, can you help me get cheaper fees? And what they've done is they've reduced the cost of debit card transactions, but they've bumped up the cost of something else like the payment terminal or we're giving you debit card transactions for this cost, but that's because you're not paying for the terminal. So now we're going to charge you for the terminal and we're going to make more money. And the small business is only like, oh, yeah, this is too hard and I don't have the mental or emotional energy to deal with this. So really it's about getting this petition signed, creating an awareness, making sure that your customers or the people that you advise are aware and helping us that way. I mean, we're coming on to, I think it's around 13,000 signatures now. So it's quite a decent petition that's available to sign. And that would be really helpful. Fantastic. Let's get the word out. Let's get people signed up to that. Let's get people supporting it. Yeah, it's needed for the high street, no doubt. Moving on from that, in terms of from a campaign perspective, the thing that I actually found quite interesting was your background in terms of the bookkeeping and accountancy space. And something that I kind of noticed, looking back in terms of both podcasts and some of the media, was really kind of championing the role of bookkeepers in modern society and advocacy in particular. And I know this is something which you're definitely passionate about, which is helping bookkeepers really level the playing field for the businesses that they represent. I was just really keen to hear from you, especially for any bookkeepers, accountants that are out there, your take in terms of their role and what they can do, not just in terms of the day-to-day, but helping their customers. You know what? It's interesting in this space because I don't think that bookkeepers and accountants realise the role that they do play for their customers and for their clients. They do it innately. And they do it through questioning and let's look at COVID at the moment and all these business grants that are flying around. They do it by unpacking the complexity of these support mechanisms and understanding what's best for their client. And then they do it by sitting on the phone for hours with the government department that hasn't paid their clients yet and advocating for their clients to get paid. And they do it because they talk to the ATO constantly about explaining the situation their client is in. Can we please buy some more time? Can we have a bit of leniency? These are conversations that bookkeepers and accountants have all the time on behalf of their clients. They sit there on the end of the phone and listen to the crappy day that their client had. They help them to try and cut costs. They help them to understand government support and education programs that are available to them. They're constantly sending information to their clients about how to be better in their business, not just better at their bookkeeping. And they help them find software 
that makes them be more efficient. And all that is advocacy. And I think that I'd love to see, I try and explain this in every forum I'm in from whether it's an afternoon call with a bunch of bookkeeping friends or maybe on a Facebook page where there's tens of thousands of people on there talking about what's happening in the bookkeeping world. We are advocates because we do it every day. And I think that there needs to be a certain pride in the community about the work that we do on behalf of the small business community. And really, me stepping into this role as CEO of COSBOA, I can't do this because I had a radio show. I can't sit in a meeting with a minister and articulate what happens in a small business because I had a radio show. I do that because I was a Bass Agent bookkeeper. And I think there's a real opportunity for everyone to step into that role and recognise that, you know, we're a force to be reckoned with, that knowledge is insanely accurate, up-to-date, minute by minute and really valuable to people who want to listen. So have the confidence to be in a business group and present or go and speak to your local council on behalf of small businesses or get involved in the local chamber of commerce that is advocating for small businesses in your area because that amount of knowledge that bookkeepers and BAS agents have is phenomenal. And because they're in those accounts weekly, daily, because they're on the phone to their clients a lot they have that real knowledge of how their small businesses tick. And that's really powerful these days. It's so, so important, especially when you look at what's happening to our local communities. We've seen 350 bank branches fully closed by the big four since the pandemic. In their desire to cut costs and overheads, they've also cut essential services to many small business owners and haven't necessarily replaced that with a sophisticated self-service tool in the form of a web or mobile application. So against the backdrop of an increasingly complex financial ecosystem, businesses are even more isolated from their usual source of financial guidance and have to make important financial decisions based on limited and poor access to information. Combine that with the fact that 90% of all businesses have less than a handful of staff, you can understand why it's imperative to have access to support that can advise you on your cash flow position, uh, carry out scenario planning for wherever might be next around the corner and help you access COVID-related relief funding. The question arises then, what's left to fill that gap? Well, we already have someone there that's unbiased, regulated, financially literate, and trusted by businesses, which is why I genuinely believe, like yourself, accountants have what it takes to become the next bank manager 2.0, if you may. Yeah, that's right. And there's a few other things that have sort of disappeared over time. You mentioned the bank manager, but there's other aspects like a lot of local councils no longer have a focus on economic development. Now, I think COVID is changing that and they're turning their focus back to how they can support their small business community because they're finally recognising the necessity of hanging on to that because of the tourism dollars for no other reason. I mean, if I think about Hornsby Council, they're looking at their strategic plan and they're saying local economic development and tourism because they're recognising that small businesses play a part. So we are seeing a shift back to a focus on small business, but we do see a lot of government agencies kind of plugging the gaps with support measures like coaching programs that may not really be tailored for what's best. And I think what's great about advisors like accountants and bookkeepers is that if we don't know the answer, 
we'll go and find it. And we will ourselves be well connected enough to say, look, I can't help you with this, but I know someone who can, or I know someone who knows someone who can, or I can push you to a government page that'll give you the answers that you need. And that is another strength of the community. Cool. Well, final question. Just for, again, anybody that's listening out there, whether they're an accountant, bookkeeper, small business owner, you've got your finger on the pulse. What resources would you recommend that they go to, that they use, utilize, if they're looking to find out any other information, obviously on Cosborough or information when it comes to policies, regulations, relief? What are the resources that you'd recommend for everybody out there? Well, if you could follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn, you'll be constantly advised on what spaces COSBOA is playing in. Also, make sure that you're connected with your professional association. Become a member. I think you'll be surprised how much benefit you can get out of being part of a professional association, apart from the fact that it gives you the accreditation. But it gives you access to advocacy for those industry-specific your sector of the economy? What is it that you're doing? And what is the strength of those associations is really understanding from that business's perspective, what they're going through and providing support and mentoring options and helping them through tough times. And you can be quite involved in those communities and really give something back as well. So I always, when people ask me, what is it that businesses can do to help themselves? It's reach out to your professional association, make sure that you're accessing services like Beyond Blue, New Access Program. And that's a phenomenal very tailored for small business support program in place right now, completely free. Highly recommend, if nothing else, to just to give yourself a nip and a tuck here and there on your mental health. But also just being active and reaching out and making sure that you're talking to people. We can sit here in our little offices and be completely disconnected and just immersed in our emails and nothing else. But, you know, pick up the phone particularly people in the same position as you reach out to them and see how they're doing and in turn ask for help. Asking for help and being aware of your mental well-being is incredibly important. Right? If you neglect your brain, then the rest of you suffers. Uh, and to the point earlier on, getting career burnout or even parental burnout, it's becoming even more commonplace. Right? Uh, you, you have to find whatever works for you and make sure you get that support. You know, as my belief is that the nine to five work life balance mantra is just a myth, right? And you need to do what works for you, not everyone else. Ideally, for everyone out there, you go to work to earn a living, to pursue a passion, to flex your creativity and problem solving ability, uh, and to ultimately, ideally, be fulfilled. I found that. As a leader, it's really important for me to show to the rest of the team that, you know, back to that point, that from a life perspective, work ultimately comes after everything else. Uh, so you know, I prioritize time in my diary every day so we can see when I'm off to swim or surf or run or jump into a virtual yoga class because I hope that they do the same. Anyway, how will you prioritize your time um, to be your best self and achieve your dreams, that's that's really up to you. You need to choose that balance wisely. It's interesting, though, as a society, it's unfortunately something that we we haven't been great at handling in terms of you know, mental health and, and well-being. But do you know why? That's because it's become a talk fest. It doesn't need to be just a chat. It can be something quite practical. I've learned over the years that small businesses love a practical solution. 
give me something that I can do, then I feel like I've taken that action. Exactly. And there are really practical solutions out there like the new access program that make you feel as though you're, without realising it, actually (laughs) self-caring, actually looking after yourself and your business. And don't feel like during this horrendous downtime that you don't try and take yourself away from the stresses of what's going on in your business life and perhaps look at other aspects of your life, which small businesses isn't so great at doing. Here's an opportunity to take some stock of other things that are happening. So get some help. There are mechanisms, there are checklists, if that's what floats your boat, and just get out there and try and stay connected with other people. Amen. Self-care and positivity. Love it. Fantastic. Well, thank you for taking the time out, especially as I know that you're absolutely swamped. Uh, For anybody listening, what's the best way to get in touch with yourself um, if they've got any questions? Just head to the cosboa.org.au website and reach out to us and let us know. And through your professional association, if they're members of COSBOA, you're seeing something float to the surface that you think is important to be advocated for, let us know. That's brilliant. Thank you. Right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. That's it. Hope you enjoyed the show and we will speak to you soon. Cheers. Thanks, Brian. Lovely to chat. Thank you.